Yes, I did go to Apoka. I had every intention of dancing the polka with my wife. And then we watched everyone else dance and thought, yeah, we're not going out there. They are so good. Yeah, it would not be fun for us, would not be fun for them. So we sat back and, and I told Chuck about it. And then, you know, we sang that song and I tried to polka through that song and I don't think it worked very well. But... Regardless of how we sang that song, regardless of the genre, isn't the promise true? He is coming again, right? Amen for that, and uh, I am so glad that he is coming back, and he is coming back for us, the church, and what, what an incredible truth. Let's go ahead and let's, uh, well, I guess, let me say one other thing before I get started. I just wanted to thank uh, Bob and Chuck, last week a lot was put on them really quickly. Uh, being out of town and, and Greg was supposed to cover and there was some sickness and Bob and Chuck had to pick up a lot of slack and it was also very nice that Jerry could come and fill in uh, at the last minute. Uh, it, was, it was coming down to the last minute. So, so very thankful uh, for, for Jerry, so very thankful for Bob and Chuck and uh, just it, it's nice to know that when when I can't be here with you, that there are competent leaders here who are faithful to the word and can rise to the to any a challenge. So I just want to thank our deacons for the work that they did. Let's go ahead and let's pray, and then we'll spend some time in the text this morning. Father, we are so very thankful for your son, Jesus Christ. We're so very thankful that you've worked in our lives, that you have caused your spirit to come, and that as your spirit comes and works on our hearts, we see the truth of Jesus. We're so very thankful for your word. We're so very thankful for our brothers and sisters. Uh, We thank you for the promises that we have. We thank you for these texts that we have before us in the book of Proverbs that You use in our life to sharpen, you use in our life to chip away at some of those attitudes and actions that we shouldn't have. You you alter our worldview by examining the text and that we can have a view of the world that is accurate to reality, accurate to the way it is because of who you are. And Father, we ask that as we look at the text this morning, you would align our thinking to think correctly you would cause us to see things that aren't supposed to be in our life and that you would convict us of that sin and that you would then empower us to live by the power of your spirit so that we may become more like your son, Jesus Christ. So very thankful for this time that we have and we just ask that you would be with me, allow me to share the truth in an accurate way that's understandable so that your church, your people can be edified. We're so very thankful for Jesus and everything that he does. We say this in, his son's, in your son's name. Amen. So, uh, yeah, been in Wisconsin past week. Went there for a family funeral, as I said. Uh, uh, the, the funeral was a, a lot of gospel. Uh, but there was one thing that happened during the funeral that uh, was funny. It wasn't a planned funny, but it was a funny 
the officiant, I, I did not uh, officiate, uh, the officiant was reading the obituary of Arlen, that was the deceased, Krista's grandfather. And as he's going, there are a couple names that are difficult to pronounce, and he had trouble. Then he gets to my family, right, with Krista. He says Krista's name great, says my name. In my mind, I'm thinking, okay, he's going to get Ezra. That's a book of the Bible. We're good. Says Ezra great. I'm thinking, okay, he's going to have trouble with Sophia. AJ is the simple one. Out of all of the names of the family, it's just two letters. And uh, poor guy called AJ Al. We then, for the rest of the day, called AJ Al. And I called AJ Al this morning. <laughs> While we were leaving the funeral, going to Arlen's favorite place, guess what song we played? Bump, 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 bump. You could call me Al. We played that. AJ said, Why are you doing this? Because the guy called you Al, right? We go to this place called the Pizza Ranch. I don't know, has anybody ever been to a pizza ranch? It's kind of this, it's interesting. So we walk in. And it's a pizza buffet place that is Western, right? So it's got cowboy paraphernalia everywhere. But the owners are believers. They have to be. There's no way that this just happens by coincidence. You walk in and you have to walk by a display table with tracks and copies of the New American Standard Bible. Full copies. They had coloring books for kids. So my kids pick up one. I say, well, let me look at that first. Look at it. It's got a clear gospel presentation for children in a really nice coloring book. And there are Bible verses plastered throughout the entire thing. And, and not just, you know, the normal stuff that you see. Like, they had Philippians 1.21 on the wall. For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. And the pizza wasn't half bad as well. Uh, it, was, it was just great. And, and, you know, as I'm sitting there with the family, as we're eating pizza, Arlen's favorite meal, we're, we're remembering Arlen. One of the songs we sang at the funeral was Just a Sinner Saved by Grace. That was his favorite song. He said, this describes me perfectly. I'm sitting there thinking of Arlen, thinking of all the funny things that happened with Arlen. We're talking about Arlen. We're all the families together. We're eating pizza we're in, we're in this place that's got Bible verses, and I just, there was a sense of joy. Not, not that we were excited that Arlen went home to be with the Lord, but we believe in the promises of God. And Arlen, believe, he verbally attested to that promise of God. And so you think, though this one dies, he's living, and there's this, there's, this great comfort in knowing the promises of God. And then as we were talking about some of the events that led up to the night when he passed, there were so many little things that seemed random, out of place, but were perfectly timed events that happened for the family, happened for Arland, that you would go, it seemed like somebody planned this months in advance. Like the logistics of the planning and the logistics. So like, for example, Rachel was here while I was in New Mexico. 
Rachel gets back on a late flight to Minneapolis. They pull into the driveway, and that's when then they find that Arlen had passed. So it was while Rachel was there with Keith, he was already up. Just, just those types of things. It was providential. You just look at that going, this seemed planned, right? This morning, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the providence of God. And when, when I say the providence of God, I mean this. It, it means that God is working all things towards his ultimate purposes. Okay, that's what providence is. He's causing things to happen to work out to his ultimate end, right? So it deals with his sovereignty. This morning, we're going to talk about God's providence. We're going to talk about his providential governance, meaning that as he rules over the affairs of men, he not only is ruling and and acting as a king, he is also providentially bringing things together, And he's causing these things to come together regardless of any of my actions, regardless of any of my attitudes, and regardless of any of my limitations. He's working all of this out to his end so that the ultimate conclusion is his victory. He wins. The end, he wins. There's nothing you can say. There's nothing you can do. There's no plan you can have. There's no wisdom. There's no counsel that will change the outcome of God's victory. The reason that this is in Proverbs 21, which is this important passage which deals with the wicked are rebellious and the righteous are submissive, the reason that we need to know this in this context is this. You need to listen to God. Why? Because he wins. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter how you think it. It doesn't matter how you come to that. God wins. So you can fight against it and you will lose. Or you can submit and be along with him. Right? His victory will be your victory. Now, I want to show this. And we're going to be in Proverbs 21, verses 27 through 31. Just two things that we're going to look at this morning. So in verses 27 through 29, we're going to look at God's dealing with humanity. We're going to see him dealing with man. Dealing with man in his actions, dealing with man in his attitudes. Then, in Proverbs 30 and 31, we're going to see God's victory over humanity. That is something that you and I need to be reminded of constantly. God wins. Uh, I know that sometimes we can look at the newspaper or watch the news or, or, or get things on our Facebook page or things on our email that makes it look like we're losing. The culture is going down the tube, right? Uh, thing, things don't look like they're redeemable. And, and so you get the sense of Either hopelessness, there's nothing I can do about the situation, this is the way it is, oh no, what are we going to do? Or we, we get so angry, we say we're going to fight it through means that are not sanctioned by God's word. But knowing this truth that God wins and his truth wins out, there is a sense that we can go, okay, I can breathe. He wins. He wins. He's got this in control. He knows about this. He knows about how bad it is. In fact, I would argue he has a better view of how bad it is than my perspective of how bad it is. He knows this, and he's still going to win. I just got to trust him. 
each moment, and I got to be obedient in each moment. He wins. That's the end. Other people are coming up with arguments, trying to not be obedient. Guess what? He wins. They can't defeat him. These are the things that we're going to look at. So let's first look at this first one of God dealing with humanity. And we're going to look at how God deals with humanity in their actions. And this first action is really kind of how man views God, right? That's how, that's how we're going to kind of see it, how man views God. God deals with man and man's view with God, man's worship, man's relationship with God. So notice verse 27. Here Solomon looks at the negative. He says, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? So first, verse 27 is not by itself. There's this entire weight of the chapter that deals with this concept of the rebellious person, the one who's rebellious, the one who does not listen. In verse 26, the immediate context, remember two weeks ago we said, We saw how the wicked, he craves and he craves all day long. What is he doing? What's that driving appetite of the fool? It's that evil, lustful craving, right? His his depravity needs to be fed by more depravity. That's That's what he's craving. That's his appetite. So from that appetite, right, from that place of foolishness and from wickedness, then verse 27 then is... Has a little, it kind of colors it in, right? And it says, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. Now, we've seen this phrase almost word for word already in the book of Proverbs. Remember in chapter 15, verse 8, we saw it, it is almost the same exact wording, that the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. Now, in chapter 15, it, the, the parallelism shows a contrast. So you have the wicked, and this is what the wicked person does, and and it's an abomination, but the Lord listens to the prayer of the righteous. Here, there is no contrast. It's describing the wicked. It's describing their utter rebellion. And notice here, once again, that the sacrifice, the very thing that the wicked person is bringing, which is an ironic sentence, by the way, We don't normally think of a wicked person bringing a sacrifice to the Lord, right? That's not normally how we think about these things. We think a righteous person, a good person, a wise person takes time and gives up of their resources to the Lord. A wicked person is withholding that. So here you have a wicked person doing something that looks righteous, so the sacrifice itself from a wicked person, it is an abomination. God looks at that and says, what is this? This isn't what I want. I don't want this. I, I, I don't want this. It, it's not a, a comment on God's hatred of, sac, of the sacrificial system. We know that in the Old Testament, there was a robust sacrificial system. You were obligated, if we lived back then, we would be obligated to travel to Jerusalem and offer sacrifices and all these numerous sacrifices of free will offerings and and, and, and sin offerings, right? Grain offerings. There would be all these sacrifices that we would bring and there would 
Uh, all of the men, we would travel to Jerusalem every year for certain festivals. And, and as we were there, the law would require us to offer sacrifices. This is not against the sacrificial system. This is saying that it's possible that when a wicked person gives a sacrifice in the midst of that culture, in the midst of that context, God hates that sacrifice. It doesn't matter. He, it's not as if he's pacified by the simple act of giving a sacrifice. The scripture teaches this, by the way, numerous places. Remember when Samuel was talking to Saul and he said God would rather have obedience than a sacrifice. There's times in the book of Malachi where God is saying to the people, this is not the type of sacrifice I want. I don't want the sacrifice. I want obedience. I, I, want, a, I want a right heart. I, I, I want somebody to, to, to love me. It's not just giving a sacrifice that God wants. The sacrifice is an outflow of one's life. I suppose it's possible for a wicked person to think, all God wants is my stuff. And if I give him my stuff, he will like me. If I give him this sacrifice, it's okay. It's not given in the right spirit. It's not given with the right thinking. And so God looks at this type of thing, the, the sacrifice of, of the wicked as, a, as an abomination. It itself, the sacrifice itself is loathed by God. God deals with these people, right? This is God's view of this faulty worship. What is maybe more interesting in this text is the next phrase, right? Obviously, God doesn't accept the sacrifice because it's an abomination to him. The sacrifice itself is bad. You have a wicked person giving a sacrifice. But then notice what Solomon says. He says, how much more when he brings it with evil intent? So you mean it's possible for a wicked person to bring a sacrifice with no evil intent? You mean intention isn't necessarily uh, 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 the distinguishing factor between the sacrifices? Like it's possible for a wicked person to have even more evil intent than the wicked intent? Whatever this intent is, by the way, this, this intent, this amplification of the wicked sacrifice, that's what I think the second part is. I think this is amplifying the first. It's demonstrating that the sacrifice is evil because the intent itself is evil. The question is, what is this, what is this evil intent? What is meant by evil intent here? This word, by the way, for evil is used in several ways. Uh, the, the evil intent could speak of a devious plan. And when, when used throughout the rest of the Old Testament, it could speak of just a wicked person plotting. It, it could talk about the thoughts of a, of a foolish person. It, it could talk about sexual sins. It could talk about just idolatry. Generally, we would say that this, this evil intent could be some sort of bribe either to pacify one's conscience or, or, or to bribe God. Here you go, God, I'll give you this if you give me that. That's not a good sacrifice. That's not how we're supposed to, we're not supposed to wheel and deal with God, right? He's not a used car salesman, and our sin is much more than just a transaction, right? It, it could be some sort of trickery, right? 
It may be something where a wicked person is doing a sacrifice to gain position in that culture, right? If a wicked person is saying, well, how am I going to be able to sell more things? I know I'll get a special blessing from this particular priest. Well, how am I going to get that blessing from that priest? I know I'll stand in his line during the sacrifices. I'll say the right words at the right time. I'll become buddies with him and he'll bless my stuff. I suppose another thing could happen that could be an evil intent. Suppose someone thinks they are actually right with God. They're doing the right thing but they just have the wrong theology. It's still an evil intent. It's not the right intent. Whatever is meant here, whatever is meant here, this is bad, right? This is a bad thing. And and notice that God judges this. This is an abomination. We, We have to make sure that when we worship the Lord and we give to the Lord, that we're giving with the right heart, and with the right intention, that our worship is done clothed with the righteousness of Christ, that is empowered by the Holy Spirit, that we have confessed our sins, that we're right before the Lord, and that when we give, we give with the right motive. I, I, I want to I edify my brothers and sisters. I, I, I want them to be edified by, by what I'm doing and by what I'm giving. I want God to be glorified by what I'm doing. God does not like it when we just simply go through the motions. That's not okay. Nor does he, he is not pleased when we just simply just give something for the sake of just giving something to pacify our own conscience. God deals with this, right? He, he gives a judgment. It's an abomination to him. Now, there's another thing. Notice the... Notice the other action that may happen. If the first is the, the way that a person deals with God, right? Worship, sacrifice. Notice the next one. It says uh, in verse 28, a foolish witness will perish, or a false witness, excuse me. A false witness will perish, but the word of a man who hears will endure. Kind of an awkward parallelism here of what, how does the first compare with the second. It's generally understood in a, in a courtroom setting from the book of Proverbs that a false witness is somebody who's willing to perjure themselves for some sort of advantage. And this type of person is condemned, right? We as Christians should not be part of any fraud. We should not be known as any perjurers in the courtroom. On official documents, we should not be known as those who are willing to forge signatures, right? We should not be known as these, right? Because there's serious consequences, not only for society, but for ourselves and for our family. And so here, a false witness will perish. Somebody who is in a situation, in a legal context, that lies. That, that person will perish. The, the next part is, but a, a, the, the word of a man who hears will endure. The idea is that one is intently listening. One who wants to say the truth accurately. That's probably a, a, a good way of thinking of the second part. So you have one who's willing to say the truth in a way that shades it so that people believe something else. And then you have another man who's careful and listens and, and wants to say the truth in, in, in a way that's accurate. So 
God looks at one, and, and one will perish. Not only will there be consequences in the society, but a person that does this habitually from the book of, of Proverbs is a fool, and a fool necess- from the book of Proverbs is one who's wicked, right? We would say that the other, they will endure, right? The, the idea is that those who are truthful... God blesses and rewards. So he deals with man. So the first may be worship. The second may be with how we deal with each other. God deals with these things. Right? You could see that. One's an abom- Here's this abomination. This one will perish. This one will endure. God's working. He's dealing with these people. We might see people doing things that we go, God, how long are you going to allow this to happen? He's on his own timetable. right? And, 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 and they, there will come a time where God will deal with this. So we have to be okay with that. God's dealing with things in his own time. Nothing escapes his notice. So this is, this is God dealing with man in, in man's actions. Now notice the next verse, because he, he, he kind of goes from one's actions to, I guess what we could say is one's attitude, Just notice in the next verse, in verse 29, it says, A wicked man puts on a bold face, but the upright gives thought to his way. Kind of an interesting phrase here of puts on a bold face. The the idea of putting on a bold face, kind of the idea of hardening one's face. And the image would be the hardening of one's face that happens right before somebody goes into battle, right? There's like this time as you get to battle and you, you get the speech and you as you're as you're thinking about what I'm about ready to do you mentally prepare and the, the, the it speaks of a soldier that's face becomes hard I'm gonna fight right you can see this in I've seen this in boxers as well you know when they're standing at the center of the ring and the the guy saying, I want a good, clean fight. I don't want anything here or here. As they're looking at each other, you can describe their face as being a bold face, a, a, a firm face, a statue face, right? It's, it's hard. So this, this idea of a bold face, of, of this, this, this outward expression, is an outward expression of someone that's about ready to fight, someone that stands in opposition, someone that says, I'm not going to give in. It speaks of one's rebellion. And so in the context, because it's a wicked man, in the context of this chapter, we would say that a wicked person, when dealing with God's wisdom, with God's word, puts on a bold face and says, I'm not giving in. Not. I'm not going to listen. You can't make me. That's the attitude. You're not going to make me do this. I'm not going to submit. You're not going to overpower me. My, my will will not be broken. To, to my dying death, I will not be submissive to you. Th- that's the attitude. It's this bold front. It, it, it's this defiance. What a, what a terrible attitude to have when it comes to the Lord. To say, I'm not going to submit to you. Uh, I don't want to listen to you. No matter what is said, no matter what is done, I will not, I will not concede. 
this is, this, this is the attitude of this one. And God deals with these people, right? He, he, he will deal with these people. But notice the upright. The upright is it's kind of an interesting uh, contrast because the one's putting on a, a bold face. And you almost have the idea that he's putting on a bold face even before he hears, right? So he doesn't even listen to what God has to say. He starts off going, I'm not going to submit. But notice the, the upright. The upright gives thought to his ways. So the upright is different in the sense that he is inclining his ear to listen to God's word. He's inclining his ear. He's thinking about God's will. He's thinking about God's wisdom. He's thinking about his life in, in light of God's word. He's thinking of the righteousness of God. He's thinking of the attributes of God. And he looks at his life in light of this and goes and scrutinizes his life and says, what needs to change so that I can be honoring to God? What needs to change so I'm living correctly? So the one immediately without thinking says, no. And the other one says, I'm here to listen. Teach me. Teach me. What what things are in my life that I need to get rid of? Right? That, that's the idea, that scrutiny of one and, and the other one of just this mindless, mindless uh, disregard. I, 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 think of, I think of Psalm 119, verse 59. He says, when I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. That's the idea of somebody who thinks. It's one who looks at God's word, looks at it and goes, well, this is the way I need to be going. Right? Two completely different attitudes, right? Two opposite, polar opposite people. One's defiant, the other one's submissive. We've already seen from this chapter, God deals with them. It's a bad idea to be defiant to God's word. It's a bad idea. It should not be named amongst us as believers to say that we were defiant against anything in God's word. The unfortunate truth is, I guarantee you this past week, there is something that was in God's word that commanded you to do something, and you said, no. I'm going to do my own thing, because I want to. That's not good. It happens. But we as believers should have a soft heart that's willing to listen And we should say, whatever God's word says, that's what I want to do. I want to do his word. I I, I want to be pleasing to him. I I want to to have that soft heart, thoughtful heart that looks at my ways and looks at his word and says, this is where I want to be and yielding to the power of the spirit. Right? That should be our attitude. It should be one of humility, one of teachability. Not this I'm right. Because do you know who I am? (laughs) Right? It should be one who is considering God's word. God deals with these people. And and, and there's this providential care. There's this providential thing that happens as God uh, is working in everybody's life. And as he's uh, causing the the world to, to reach its culmination where everything will be in subjection under the feet of Jesus. And he's working, and these people are in our lives, and God's using them, and he's working on them, and, and he's 
causing things to come in and out of people's lives. The righteous and the wicked, they're all part of this grand scheme, right? They're all part of his providential plan. And he deals with them. And he deals with them in different ways, at different times. Might not be the way that you and I think he should deal with them, but he deals with them. This next point, the next two verses, we're going to see how God is victorious over all humans. This ends this chapter. Remember, at the beginning of the chapter, it dealt with God's attributes, primarily the attribute of God's sovereignty, that he's in control. This, it will end, 21 ends, with speaking of God's power, of his sovereign power, and that he wins. And so remember, the idea is to convince us to be wise, to convince us to follow God's word, to to be submissive. Solomon, in the way in writing this, as he's carried by the Holy Spirit, adds this, and this is a great incentive to be obedient. Why should I be obedient and submissive? Because he wins. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what it... what, what you think. It doesn't matter whether you speak your truth or not. He wins. This is reality. So, notice verse 30. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. That sends shivers down my spine. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. None of that can, can avail against the Lord. This is a powerful, powerful verse that helps us understand ourselves, understands the limitation of our own minds, of our own worldviews, of the worldviews of those around us. It shows the limitation of mankind right away. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if somebody has something that you think is wise. Doesn't matter if they have an understanding. Doesn't matter what their counsel is. It doesn't matter. God's right. And there's nothing that I can say or think or, or, or understand about the world that can ever overthrow God's order, that can overthrow God's plan, that can somehow dethrone him. Powerful. It's powerful. It's something that when we, when we look at the world around us and we go, there's a lot of people who claim to be wise and they're trying to overthrow God and overthrow the things that are found in God's word and these, these principles. What's going to happen? Guess what? It won't last. It can't stand. It's an interesting word, by the way, here when it says, first, no wisdom. This cannot mean God's wisdom. It just can't. Because if it meant God's wisdom, then it would be absolutely confusing, right? There's no wisdom from God that can overthrow God. Well, yeah, that's a self defeating claim. It must be understood as wisdom that is found from outside of God's word, right? Other than the things that He prescribes. Right? Because of the idea of it standing against God, it has to be, it has to be a worldly wisdom. 
That's the only way you can understand it. This is one of the few times in the book of Proverbs where the word wisdom does not mean godly wisdom that begins with the fear of the Lord. This is worldly wisdom. This is wisdom that comes from man and originates from man. This is the wisdom of man that distorts God's wisdom, right? That's what we're talking about here. It's interesting, one of the commentators said that this could speak of a synthesis of thought or theories or systems or, I like it better here, worldview. So the Caleb translation would say, no worldview, (laughs) right? No worldview. That's the idea of wisdom here. It, It means that man, apart from God, cannot come up with an accurate worldview concerning God. It means apart from God, no man can come up with an accurate worldview concerning himself. It means that he, that without God, I cannot come up with an accurate worldview about other people. It means I can't come up with an accurate worldview about the problems of the world. I can't come up with an accurate worldview of the solutions for those problems. It means I can't come up with an accurate view of what is right and what is wrong of that standard. I can't build a worldview that's strong enough that will overcome the worldview that God offers, the truth and reality. Here's, here's the limitation of the human mind, right? A couple weeks ago, remember when I talked about the intellectuals, those men that from the grave rule the thought of the modern world, and some of their crazy ideas. And all of their ideas started with themselves saying, I love man more than any other man. And my system of thinking and of right and wrong is the way that you should live. And it always pushed you away from the scripture. It always downplayed the scripture. Always downplayed God because they didn't believe in God. They started from, I can, the only thing I know is the thing that I can see and I can touch. Their worldviews cannot stand. It's ironic. It's divine irony. That one of those men who said, I will defeat God and in a hundred years people will know my works and they will not know the Bible, tried to destroy every Bible he, he saw It is funny that the International Bible Society now prints Bibles in his living room. So his house is now known as the Bible Society Printing Press. That's funny, right? You don't even know that dude's name, right? If I said Voltaire, who knows Voltaire, right? Have you ever read Voltaire? I haven't, but I've read the Bible, right? So the, the, the irony of it, it's so obviously true on its face. Then understanding. From one's worldview, we can come up with this way of examining things around us to try to offer solutions. Apart from God, our worldview's off, and all those solutions are off. They're off. Now, some solutions might have more truth in it than others, but they're off. 
they, they can't compare to the wisdom that's found in God's word. A wise person knows this. Why should I submit to God's word? Because anything I think apart from God's word is useless. So this means that any examination I have of God apart from God and his word is useless. Any analysis I have of myself apart from God is useless. Of my neighbors, it's useless. Of the problems of the world, it's useless. Of the solutions around us, it's useless. Then notice the next one. It says, and counsel, no counsel. This is the idea of when somebody then starts acting things out and giving advice on how things act out. Well, if the beginning is rotten, then the whole process then is rotten, right? And so the things that they say we need to do, they don't bring you any closer to God. They cause more chaos, more hurt, more sin. And it doesn't matter what they do, they can never get rid of God and his wisdom. They can't overthrow him. Here's the limitation of all human wisdom. And I love how Solomon puts this. He says, can no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against God. It literally, stand, it literally is, it can't rival God. The word is a military word. It means to stand in opposition to. Stand in opposition to, to overtake. It's of an army coming up against another army with the intention of overrunning that army. To capture, to destroy. It's gone. That's the word. So there's no wisdom, there's no human wisdom, understanding or counsel that can come and rival itself with God, overthrow God or overthrow his wisdom. That's what Solomon said. Regardless of how innocent it may seem or how diabolical it may seem, nothing can stand in opposition and overtake God, his wisdom, his truth, his word. You should breathe easy because of this verse. You should be able to look at the culture around us and all of their terrible worldviews and pieces of advice, and you go, it looks like they're winning. Guess what? It won't last because it can't stand. It can't win. It won't win. It'll die. It also should be a gentle rebuke for us and remind us that Man, I better be careful what I think and how I advise people because it's possible that I might have some unbiblical thoughts, some unbiblical ways of thinking that don't line up with God's word. So I must be careful and not be arrogant and not say I'm right before I even read, but to be the upright one who looks and examines his ways. Now notice the next verse in verse 31 of God's victory. He's victorious over man. The one is dealing with man's intellect and the limitation of man's intellect. Notice what it says in verse 31. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. This isn't saying that it's wrong to prepare. It's not saying that it's wrong to have an army it's not wrong to have these things. It's not wrong to prepare. That's, if you read that in this verse, you're reading it wrong. The idea is 
no matter what kind of preparation you have or you've made, it doesn't matter because the ultimate outcome is the Lord's. And if taken in the context of verse 30, the idea is these people who have this wisdom and understanding and counsel that bring this frontal attack against the wisdom of God, it doesn't matter what they have. The victory is from the Lord. The victory is not from preparation. The victory is from the Lord. No matter how hard an atheist prepares, he cannot overtake the Lord. Even in our own lives, no matter how much we prepare, how much insurance we have, how much we have of all of these things, guess what? The final outcome is from a sovereign God. He determines the outcome. And here, because of the battle language, it, it seems to be hostility towards God, so it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter about the fool and what the fool thinks. I can do what I want to do when I want to do it. I, 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 can, I, I don't have to listen. I can stand in opposition to. I, I, I can put up my boxing gloves, and I'm going to take that down. I'm going to take down God's wisdom. It doesn't matter. They will lose. Because the victory belongs to the Lord. It doesn't matter about the human's will to overcome. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter on the man who wills or the man who desires. The outcome is the sovereign Lord. So as believers, one of the pieces of advice that we should have here is he wins. Why fight it? He went. I, I already know how it ends. He wins. His wisdom wins. His wisdom is best. How crazy do I have to be to say I want to do something different? So this should be an encouragement to us to, to be obedient. Now, I know that uh, it's always difficult for us as humans on this side of glory to submit to God's word. We sin every week. I guarantee you, when we, get, when we leave, we get into our cars, there will be a sin. Might be a big sin. Might be just a little one. I understand the struggle that a believer has. Even though we might know this truth, right? I know the truth that I should be submissive. I know the truth that God's sovereign and he wins but there's still that flesh. This text should cause us to say, you know what, that battle is very real. And it is the battle of our life. And it should be the battle that is the one that we are concerned with the most. My flesh. The things that I do. This should be the battle. This is it. This is the big enemy. Us. Our flesh. Ourselves. But I will say this, there is also a point of comfort here. Is there not? I mean, aren't you tired of hearing about all of these crazy theories that are coming out? Crazy theories about this and crazy theories about gender. And, and it seems overwhelming sometimes. Every, you turn on 
TV, you turn on YouTube, you go to the grocery store, it's all there, it's in your face. It, 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 feels, it feels like the world is crashing in on top of your head. And, and you go, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do. It, it feels, you get the sense of this looming defeat. This passage should bring comfort to the believer knowing the defeat is theirs. The victory is ours. We are not fighting from a position of losing. We are fighting from a position of winning already. It's inevitable. The victory is inevitable. So why should I be scared? Why should I get nervous? Of course, I don't want my friends and neighbors to get dragged into this garbage. Of course, I'm sorrowful for the individual losses. But as I look at the culture, there is no culture war. We win. God's truth wins. I am not giving some secondary, irrelevant piece of information when I talk about God's word. It is already relevant. It is already the victorious position. It wins. I can trust it. And God is sovereign. That should bring peace to the believer. That should bring a sense of fresh air. That should be like going from the oppressive Wisconsin heat to the nice breeze here on the coast. It was incredibly hot there, by the way, in Wisconsin, if you couldn't tell. Got off the plane in Portland and thought, oh, this feels so good. That's what this text should do. Oh, we win. So why should I be afraid? So why should I fear? Why should I act irrationally? Why should I act out of anger? In the end, he wins. And I need to just trust and obey that he has it. And he has it in control. May the Lord give us both the will and the ability to do all that we heard today. Let's go ahead and let's pray.